You're very welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlith Regan. I hope you enjoy this extract from one of our classic episodes. My first conversation with Cecilia Ahern took place about two years before this one that you're about to hear. Uh, But to hear both conversations in full, why not head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad is how we support this show and how we make it bigger and better and keep going. It's how you can access, as I said, hundreds of of hours of interviews with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived and our bonus series Irishman in America and our exclusive Patreon content there's bucket loads of it over there and you can get access to it all for less than a five for a month with no obligation cancel whenever you like uh, and you'll also have the spring in your step of knowing that you help this series survive and thrive through these difficult times I want to give one more shout out to our chosen charity partner Jigsaw.ie in case you don't know Jigsaw are a youth mental health charity that works to provide young people back home in Ireland with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life just equip them with all of the stuff that we wish we had when we were that age since the pandemic began Jigsaw has seen a 400% jump in demand for their one-to-one and online group services and to say they're making a big difference is an understatement I've heard the testimonies this is an amazing charity but they can't do it without some help take two minutes to go over to jigsaw.ie now and see if they can help you or someone in your life or maybe with a little donation a month you could help them a lot that's jigsaw.ie the chosen charity partner of an Irishman abroad that's the small talk now let's get down to business now your programme What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Rigo! <laughs> Cecilia Heard, <laughs> it's great to have you back on the show. It, it doesn't feel like two years since we sat down in this very room and recorded our first chat. And at the time, you didn't mention that you'd been working on this book for the three years prior to that. No, I didn't. What were we? What book were we talking about then as well? I can't... It was The Marble Collector. That's right, yeah. Which is weird that I didn't mention because that book began as a short story from this collection. Okay. It was initially The Woman Who Lost Her Marbles. And... As I was developing it as the story, it just kept growing and growing and became a novel. So I I was writing it at that stage Mm. in that book in particular, because some people have said to me, this isn't, you know, the collection is surprising to some, but those who've read me say it's not, you know, people who've read me all along aren't completely surprised. And they've said, it reminds me of the Marble Collector. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, that's why it was supposed to fit in. So is this an experiment that you used to do? Like, obviously, short story writing is... a a method that a lot of people use to fire their brain 
without feeling like, oh, I've got this mountain to climb. I'm just writing a short piece to grease the wheels. No, I don't even think about it like that. I mean, between writing novels, I've always written short stories. Like, and sometimes magazines or newspapers would ask, you know, it's Christmas coming up. Do you have any short stories for our Christmas special? So I would always have a drawer that I'd go to. And well, I have a couple of stories here. Which one is most appropriate? Uh, so I've always been writing them, but never they were never thematically linked. And so when I sat down to write the first story five years ago, I was on holiday. I took an hour out from the kids and my husband and and that's what I wanted to do. I sat by the sea and I just wrote this story. It was called The Woman Who Slowly Disappeared and thought it was just a short story. And it was only, I'd say about five or six stories in that I realised this was a collection because I didn't want to separate them. I didn't want to give it to the magazine, but I didn't really know what to do with them. Didn't think that my publisher would want to publish a collection of short stories because I, you know, contract to do novels every year, but was enjoying them so much. I was just writing them for myself with I was kind of, it was a long game, you know, mm. I just didn't know where they were going, yeah. but I, I was so excited by them and they were doing so much for me because of the themes that I was writing about. I just kept going. Well, let's get into that first one because um, I think every parent has that feeling, right? That you, I talked about this with Tina last night, that you hand over your life. That yeah. That, that's how you do it as a parent with a child. You go... I remember cancelling my fantasy Premier League account when oh. Tina became pregnant. I went, all right, well. that's one thing we no longer need if there's anything that I don't have time for. And it's only that's like the small male end of the spectrum. As men will never fully understand what it feels like to go, I'm going to give my body yeah. and now my life to this. Your kids weren't babies, though. No. When you sat down in Kerry on that afternoon and this came out of you. Where did it come from? And do you recognize that there is so much psychoanalysis available on you now through these 30 stories? And which is really obviously annoying (laughs) for me (laughs) because and the reason why I wrote them as fictional stories as well, it's because that's my way of processing and understanding things. I'm not the character and that's not my scenario, but I can put a kind of a feeling in a moment and give it to somebody else and and play out it another way. But then when you're promoting it, you then have to talk about it Mm. in a way that I'm not, not that I'm not comfortable, but I don't like writing is my form of expression. So I have to go backwards and think, right, well, how do I explain this in in the normal way? I can't really, I've written them, but um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. I will tell you about what did inspire that first story. And it was a meeting I'd had in LA with a casting agent about eight years ago. So three years before I wrote the story. And we were talking about why my, because I've had a few TV shows made, um, why my books were popular or with them. And they were saying, I largely wrote about women in their 30s. Obviously not every book, but largely wrote about women in their 30s, which was very attractive to advertisers and their commercial led networks. And it just started all going down the business line. Um, And this is why actors in their 30s are so in demand. And she was talking about this demographic from whatever age, 24 to 54 or something like that. And I said, well, what about the women over 55? And she said, oh, no, we don't have a demographic for, for that age group. And I just thought... Well, not only do women feel invisible, you know, and and the older generation as well are often seen and felt as the invisible, invisible part of society. 
but I'm I'm sitting in a meeting listening to why they're they're not being tailored for they're not considered valid they they're not going to make money from them therefore we don't see women of a certain age on TV on our screens and uh, that bubbled away with me for a while the first thing I did was write a screenplay called Old which is about characters in their 70s and 80s which of course never got made because for the very reasons I've just explained yeah. um, what year was that meeting? that was it was probably seven, eight years ago eight and, years and ago. things have hugely changed since mm. then and then the next thing I did was write that story The Woman Who Slowly Disappears I find it's always gross when a marketer tries to explain why a piece of art is doing well, right? That is literally pulling the wings off the fairy. It was awful. And this is how it flies. And And I don't think any... It's not actually anything to do with your writing. (laughs) It's you're hitting this this target market that are voraciously hungry for what it is you do. I mean... I know and they no weren't saying person that. person should never hear that either. Uh, yeah. I think it's... It's like a conversation yeah. your parents need to have in the other yeah, room. Yeah, But I know they weren't saying anything about the writing. They were identifying yes. the people. Yes, yes. Who they, when they crunch the numbers, can make mm. money off. But like that is, that that's like really startling, right? And always something that I find gut-wrenching and makes me want to retreat. Like we talked in our first interview about the anxiety that makes you go, no, close the door, I'm not able mm, for it. Yeah. Those kind of chats would make anyone go, oh, <laughs> oh, fuck this. I'm not, well, then I'm not playing your game. Well, and I guess I did. Is. And I, I suppose it fired me up because I said to myself, that's not why I write these stories. That is not, I'm not, I'm not sitting there going, right, what's the attractive target market? What's my angle here? You know, how can I get a network to make my show? And I guess some people do think like that, Mm. you know, but I don't. And, and I rebelled against it writing my, my old screenplay. And, but it also just put things in perspective for me, you know, it's not just people feeling paranoid and, and listening to people going, I can't get a job over this age. It's really hard for women in Hollywood, you know. To, I was listening to the actual truth of it. Yeah, um, the gatekeepers yeah, saying this is yeah. how it is. Yeah. And, and by the way, lovely woman who I had the meeting with, if she was to listen to this, she'd go, God, I didn't know I'd start, you know, I thought I was being complimentary. Yeah, well, she's just so, the messenger yeah, after all. Um, she didn't create but it. it just... I, I suppose it's good that I had that meeting, you know, and while I walked out feeling a little bit soul destroyed, it did fire me up and creatively get my juices going in another way. I started thinking about, OK, I want to write about and I didn't really know it at the time. That that's what I was doing. But what I did do was write about all the women that we don't see and all the stories that we don't hear and all those moments that, you know, I've talked about this in an event last night. You know, one of my characters just back from um, maternity leave has to go to work. She's driving to work with cabbage leaves in her bra. You know, I want to see a woman with a real experience. You know, it's not just the psychological guilt that women feel going back to work. It's it's also because the body is made to feel like if you're not with your child, it it reacts. You know, if a baby Mm. cries, your breast might leak. (laughs) And like, I've never seen a movie where that happens. I've never read a book where that happens about the real things that happen to a woman. So that's kind of what the stories are made up of. It's not all about cabbage leaves and, and breast milk, but real moments that just are not depicted. Ne- and wouldn't be depicted if we had continued down the track <laughs> we had, right? What I mean when I say that is, I wonder if Hillary Clinton got elected mm. 
if we're looking at Nicole Kidman's production company taking this, mm. if when you bring it up in that meeting that you've you've told you must be blue in the face talking about it in the different interviews that there's but I wonder would you just tell our listeners about it one last time? Yeah, no, I'm I'm because it was a big moment, you know, it was a turning point for these stories because for five years I was trying to get them made for TV. You know, I have different relationships with different networks in different countries and whenever they come to me and say, what have you got? I would share various ideas and Roar was initially called The Woman Who because every story begins with The Woman Who, blah, blah, blah. I say blah, blah, blah a lot, don't I? <laughs> it's, why I it's why I write and not speak. Yeah. Um, as long as you don't write that. <laughs> no, I don't write blah, blah, blah. I'm far more... Blah, 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 end of chapter. <laughs> you can figure it out you know, for yourself. Some days I would rather... Um, Anyway, so when I was sharing it with these wonderful television people, um, I wasn't getting the same exciting response that I was getting from female friends who were thinking it was really starting conversation, a dialogue. I was mm. hearing things about them that I'd never heard before. I thought I'm onto something with these stories. I thought they were just some surreal, quirky thing from my head, but actually I'm tapping into something. And I was trying to bring that into the room when I was selling the ideas. But I was just getting, it's not that they didn't like the ideas. It was just, no, well, Gone Girl's big right now. Do you have any psychological thrillers? And so busy looking at a repetition of an already, you know, of a success right now. They're missing the new, which mm. happens a lot. That's irritating. Looking to replicate. To replicate. Rather than innovate. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm not, I hate to replicate. Um, mm. Well, what's the point in doing it? Yeah, it's Someone not exciting. Is. It's not creatively exciting for me. But I kept on going for years and years and years. Um, and then it was January of last year. I went to L.A. and I was talking about other projects and um, in a meeting, in a meeting for TV. And they said to me, well, what are you most passionate about right now? And I thought, well, here I go again. <laughs> you Take might as swing. well try yeah, it. Yeah. I have this collection of short stories called The Woman Who. And um, as soon as I shared the stories, I have said this before, but the air did change in the room. They sat up in their seats and they were really interested. And I was getting that goosebumpy feeling that I got with friends when sharing it. And I thought these people get it. You know, at one meeting, one woman cried because one of the stories opened up something in her where she shared something from her past. And I thought, yes, they get it. And that was the week that Trump was inaugurated. Um, and the Women's March. The Women's March was about to take place that Saturday. And I was sitting with people the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it's, you know, it says a lot about timing. You know, I thought the timing was right five years ago, but it was definitely right now. People were feeling very anxious, scared, raw, you know, a very fragile a feeling that we don't want things to go backwards, mm. but we need to tell more women's stories. Yeah. So, as I said, if Hillary gets elected, maybe maybe it still gets made. Maybe we recognize it as a turning point, but certainly it was like an electric shock to everyone. Yeah, that and I, made people that, want to fight back, I think. Well, this is a man who has countless women come forward and it's not his word against hers. It's his mm. word against her and her and her and her and her and on you go and still get elected. I think that as a man, that was one of the bigger shocks of it was that that didn't matter. Mm. I mean... Like we see it all the time now. We recognize it more and more that who, what you do doesn't matter depending on who you are. And that's again a, 
a disappearing feeling mm. that I'd imagine men can only empathize with. But as a woman working in the entertainment industry, you must have felt on a on a level where you did want to get up and say something. But again, as you said, that's not really what you do. No, it isn't. Um and it was a real, and I suppose it's not just even allegations against him, but he, he has this, the compassion is gone, you know, from someone in that powerful place. The, the tone of voice has changed. The perspective has completely, it's not what we want it to be, you know, and kind of the, the understanding of human, of humans, um, is not where we want it to be. And I think, so as a result of that, the reaction is to want to, I suppose the response to that is to want to tell more feeling stories, to be more understanding, to almost try and balance out the larger voice. Does mm. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So to push down on the other side exactly, of the scales. Yeah. yeah. So that that's been the response. Yeah. Um, you may be shouting that loud, but you know what? Let's try and and shout out in another way. So they go. We love the sound of this, and you're in the fortunate position, an unusual position, of having a collection of stories ready rather than doing what we discussed the last time, which was this creative process of yours of, what is it, 15 books, 14 years, mm. one book a year, your process is clear, lock yourself away, get it done yeah. and reveal it to the world. This is a collection of different shaped stones that mm. you've been sandpapering away for five years yeah that comes with a different level of anxiety and i guess foibles that you bring to handing that over now that they're into it are, are you just brimming with pride or are you still like oh god i hope people like my short storytelling as much as they do my books there's probably a bit of both but mostly pride you know, and excitement because I feel like it's been such a journey to try and get these out in the world in some form myself that finally not only after years of trying to get them to become a TV series, which it's beginning now, it's now also a book, <laughs> which is where they probably should have been all along, you mm. know, and my excitement. And I suppose my I'm passionate about every book, but I, I do feel like I've had to work harder to get these because just for the amount of time it's taken for these to reach the page and to reach the bookshelf. So I am afraid of a lot of things in life, but I'm never really afraid by what I write and put out because I wouldn't write it in the first place. You know, I'm driven by excitement and passion. And then I'm like, here, read it, read it. The excitement. I want to put it in people's hands and go, look, here's another part of me that mm. you might have not know, you might not have known was there. I take risks in my work. No problem. You won't get me on a roller coaster, but um, I will fearlessly do whatever it takes in a story. Now, I just left another hotel in London to where I spoke to uh, a movie director and producer about what you're just talking about, which is a trust in your own instinct. Yeah. Which is essentially that's when we use the overused term finding your voice. That's what it is, right? Yeah. It's believing in what your first thought. Yes. Is. Yeah. Also known as stubbornness to many. <laughs> but I like that you I'm go right. with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's the only way I know how to work. I cannot do it any other way. You know, a, a lot of people say, would send me stories or, or ideas or they say, would you be interested in writing the story of my life or something interesting happened to me 
and I just can't do it. You know, I'm not that kind of a writer. I ha- it has to be my idea. I have to feel it and I have to be, I have to get that adrenaline buzz when I come up with an idea first. It's all part of it. It's not just about the writing being good. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, there's someone's giving me a good idea. Let me write this the best way I can. There are different kinds of writers. So that it's all from a, a good place. Just a, a good you know, place. Yeah. Now, I think we all writers or not know that feeling. I think it's about being tuned into it mm. and responding to it. Right. That when people talk about writer's block and periods of feeling like create your ideas aren't coming would you agree that that might be that you've lost faith in that voice that when you hear it and you feel the thing in your stomach that you go oh, yeah but you've been you've been wrong before mm. and you know this might be just another one of those you would think that's a good idea but you're crap at making ideas into something better do you understand what i mean like you must have had periods where the voice doesn't convince you yeah i do know what you mean but also it's very important to know that a first draft will never be publishable and i think that sometimes people get really freaked out of having the perfect thing being written immediately um and then when it's not perfect it's like oh i better start again with something else it's a work in progress and at different stages of different drafts you're getting different aspects to the story like I think I write it first from the heart but you could never publish that you know I'll go back again before I I send it to my publisher and try to write it with the head you know I'll I'll fix things Mm -hmm. and I'll but for me it's a big rush in that first draft to get everything I'm feeling and how I see it down on the page but then I'll go back over it and over and over to perfect it. So what's wrong with that first heart draft? Is it a stream of consciousness? Does it is it not regulated or well, you know, what is it? There'll be things like I haven't paid attention to. Well, what what time of year is it? You mm. know, where is it? Have I jumped a week or two weeks or a month or you know, it, it's not it's not linear. It's okay. just a series of this is, yeah, I suppose, feelings, feeling the story. Mm-hmm. And then when I go back, I have to pinpoint it. Like right now I'm editing a book and, you know, the notes are, well, as usual, stop rushing the end, which is what I always do. But what's the weather like? What time of year it is? Like, I don't give a sense of where people are. I think I'm, I'm writing story and feeling and emotion, yeah. but not expanding in any other kind of area. But if you were to allow your critical voice uh, in you would criticize that first draft to the point of going, we're not going to do another one, right? That's Yeah, that's and you it. shouldn't let that happen. Yeah. That, that's, I, it's very important to not let that happen. I mean, I'll write a first draft and I know that the feeling is there, but my God, I'm not showing that to anybody. You know, I'll, I'll get there in the yeah. end. Sometimes it just depends. You know, over 15 books, each book has had a different. Sometimes I feel like I've, I've concentrated more on having this beautiful language. Um, and then I might go back and think, well, I don't know how the character's feeling. You know, they've said it very well, but can you actually get what they're feeling? So it's, I think it's difficult at every time to include every single element of the story that you need. That's what drafts are for. (laughs) You know, you go back and you add and you subtract and you're always playing around. But as long as you can tell the story and like almost map it out in a way, everyone has their own style. Sure, but but you you won't go wrong essentially is what you're saying oh, if you well 
Oh, I, I guess to, everyone, you I can always go it. wrong. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll just own it and I'll, uh, that's what I wanted. You know, you might not all love it, but that's what I was trying to achieve. <laughs> but the redraft is like the least sexy thing to talk about oh. in uh, yeah. any type of writing. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not, come it's up not time fun. and time again on the series that no one wants to talk about, <laughs> you know, the, how crap the first version of this was. You just want to swan around with your book in your hand. Yeah. But the redrafting process is about resilience. And that's something that... Honing and shaping and giving it character and embellishing, you know. And I suppose the first is like the skeleton, whether it has heart or not, you know. But then you have to tell your story better, you know. (laughs) So, So with both things that we've talked about here... You know, I'm always really conscious because I guess it's because you're a dad. I'm a dad. You're a mom and you got a little boy and girl. I got a little boy and you're trying to teach them these things like you're you're trying to learn as you go as well. But you're going, Mikey, map out this what the story is. Right. And I know he's only seven, (laughs) but, you know, he wants to go. Let's put a camera on this. Let's shoot this. Yeah. You know. So I'm like, why don't we do a storyboard and really put some love into this <laughs> storyboard? Let it make sense. And then let's introduce a twist at the end that nobody sees coming. And getting that across is is really hard because yeah. we all want to be, you know. Want to get it right in first the glamorous, time. <laughs> in the glamorous moment of getting it yeah. right and producing it. Do you find that when you're that... To a large extent, this has been referred to as a manifesto (laughs) that there was an element in this that you wanted to speak to young girls and maybe not teach, but at least speak to things that you would have liked to have heard when you were a certain age. I I don't think of it like that, but it's what has happened. So it wasn't my intention. When I'm writing, I'm a very selfish writer and it is all for me. So I'm not thinking of an audience or a reader. I'm not, there's no one whose mind I'm trying to change or convince other than my own, you know. And because these are surreal and quirky, I think I've taken issues and tried to look at them from a different angle. And sometimes when you... I'm going, I don't know how to explain this properly. Right, my weird way of explaining this is, but we're on a podcast, so you're not going to see me. You know, if you look at a weird painting, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to like close one eye and tilt your head and it makes sense. I feel like that's how I wrote these stories. You know, I was kind of like, oh, let's look at it from another angle. Um, so the gonads would be a good example yeah, exactly. of, of this. Maybe explain to the listeners, so, those of you that haven't bought the book already, uh, and, you know, I really recommend, I do say this a lot. I re- recommend a lot of things on the show just because I come into contact with people yeah. who are creating stuff. But I don't tend to have people on the show who've created things that I don't recommend. Thank you, you really need to go and buy this book. Yeah, to really Here's understand. an example of one of the stories that's in it that I absolutely loved. So The Woman Who Guarded Gonads is about um, a man who goes for a vasectomy, but he has to have a meeting first with a panel of three women where they discuss his options and tell him that it's, well, he cannot have a vasectomy in this country. And it's just kind of flipping, obviously, the situation that women find themselves in where they are not in control of their own bodies and they have to justify and explain their feelings, hoping that it might tick off Mm -hmm. things in a box. Um, 
flip I wanted an to example of you flipping it and turning yeah. it sideways and going and to show how ridiculous it is mm. I don't think writing that story is really about personal opinion it's about offering another perspective look at it from another view and if you still believe what you believe that that's fine but here's another way of looking at it yeah yeah so when all of that was going down uh, as you say you're not the kind of person to stand on a a flatbed trailer and shout into a microphone no and not everyone is and no one should be judged for that but you have that story in the 30 yeah did you want to release it at the time did you think is this is this something that you know we should consider when people are going to the polls to make their decision yeah on? but i knew it was it, we obviously had our publication date and i knew that it was going to be too late mm. unfortunately so there was there was just nothing. there it is that's just the beginning to hear almost 60 minutes more of this conversation and hundreds more full-length irish man abroad episodes and shows join us on patreon.com forward slash irish man abroad help support the creation and continuation of this series for years to come. For less than a fiver a month, you'll gain access to all our episodes, shows, live events. And for a limited time only, everyone who signs up in the first two weeks of August will get my brand new stand-up comedy special, Notions 11, shot by my favourite director, Mike Donnelly, in Vicar Street in March 2020. That's hundreds of hours of entertainment, inspiration and laughter for less than the price of one of your fancy coffees. Over at patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. I want to say thanks to my ultrasound producer, as always, Brian Connolly, to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible. And finally, to our chosen charity partner, Jigsaw. Jigsaw.ie are a youth mental health charity that is changing and saving lives across all communities back in Ireland. Now, more than ever, they could do with your support. Go to Jigsaw.ie to see their great work, get some help with the young people in your life, or maybe through a donation, you can help them.